1: It's the last weekend in January 2003, and Lawrence Wilkerson, Colin Powell's chief of staff, is sitting in his office when Colin
2: Powell comes in. He says... I need you to go to a meeting in the White House Situation Room tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. And I said, what's the meeting on? He said, and you're going to talk about how we market the war if we go to war. The meeting was about how
1: to sell a war in Iraq to the public. Lawrence remembers asking Powell,
2: Am I going over there for a fait accompli, and we're just talking about how we're going to market it? Or will this be a conversation about whether we should go to war?
1: Is that still up for discussion? The weapons inspectors were still in Iraq, the Americans and the British were still arguing the process at the UN.
2: He knew I meant, do I have some leeway to try to influence this so it isn't war? Uh, And so he looked at me and he kind of smiled and he said, I have no idea. You come back and tell me.
1: (laughs) On Saturday morning, Wilkerson goes to the meeting. It's in the White House Situation Room.
2: You know, it's tiny and it's very difficult to move around in there. And once you get in those big leather chairs and up against the table, you can't hardly move. So we got that thing packed. And there's a few people from the intelligence community around the walls. And long story short, the one person who dominates that meeting again and again and again is Doug Fife. Doug Fife, number three at the Pentagon, under Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld. And Fife keeps insisting, as we're talking about the message we would put in the president's speeches, the vice president's speeches, the secretary of state's speeches, secretary of defense's speeches, and so forth, he keeps talking about the connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda and 9/11. And you know we're just telling him that is not relevant here. Doug?
1: Wilkerson says to Fife, we've talked and talked about this, whether there's a direct connection between Saddam and al-Qaeda.
2: And we don't think it's right and the intelligence people around the wall were backing us up. Eventually Fife stopped
1: talking. But in that moment, Wilkerson realizes something.
2: And then I go back and I tell Powell, I said, we're going to war. We're going to war and almost anything that the Defense Department can throw out there on the street to support that war is going to be thrown out there on the street. And three weeks
1: later, Lawrence Wilkerson and Colin Powell would get thrown out on the street too.
2: He said, I've got to make a presentation to the UN Security Council. I want you to put it together for me.
1: I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line. Bush, Blair, and Iraq. Last time on The Fault Line, Tony Blair and Colin Powell ended up getting what they wanted, a new United Nations resolution, calling on Saddam Hussein to readmit the weapons inspectors to Iraq. The British ambassador to the UN, Jeremy Greenstock, had been fighting and working for this too.
2: But most of all, I wanted the inspectors back and working and finding a smoking gun. I needed more than words to show that we had a really convincing basis for going to war. We knew that the Iraqis were very good at concealment. I thought there had to be something there, and I hoped that in time the inspectors would get there.
1: But it was at this moment in the story that all the hype, all the talk all the stories about Iraq finally met cold, hard reality. And that's because, at long last, there were people on the ground in Iraq who could test what governments and journalists and intelligence services were saying. People like this person.
3: Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay, here we go. My name is Rocco Casagrande. I worked for UNMOVIC from December of 2002 to March 2003.
1: UNMOVIC is the United Nations Monitoring, Verification and Inspection Commission. It's the organization behind weapons inspections in Iraq. Although it didn't seem as though there was any chance weapons inspections would happen again, The inspectors had been thrown out in 1998, and it looked as though that might be it.
3: And then, lo and behold, 9-11 happened, and the administration linked that to Iraq, and inspections started. Um, And I think I signed on December 5th, and then hopped the next flight into into Baghdad.
1: Riding into Iraq, Rocco, who was in some ways a, a nerdy biologist, was just thinking, This is so weird. He's on a plane to a country where war might break out at any moment.
3: So it was a C-130 cargo plane that had, you know, a jeep in the back. You know, I'd never flown on a military aircraft before.
1: And so he arrives in Iraq.
3: Saddam International Airport. And immediately, Rocco says, he knew they were being watched. We were kind of informed that our hotel rooms were bugged, to presume that no conversations were private. You know, we were followed a lot of places we went. I think once I got to my hotel room in Iraq, I uh, started talking to the microphones that I thought was there. (laughs) Uh, And eventually I got some sleep.
1: Despite the nerves and the surveillance, Rocco was excited, ready to start
3: work. I really thought, that inspections had a hope of catching Iraq red-handed with this biological weapons program that I thought they were hiding. And so every few days, Rocco would wake up and his bosses would say, We got a hot intelligence tip that's saying, you know, this, this place, this, this farm over here probably has a Scud missile hiding in it. Go, go, go find it.
1: These were the inspections you wanted to be on brand-new intelligence, saying there were weapons ready to be discovered that the
3: Iraqis hadn't declared. We often didn't say where we were going out loud because we were afraid of being bugged. We called them secret squirrel missions. One time on one of
1: these secret squirrel missions, they get this really hot tip that within the presidential palace grounds...
3: There was a building that is Taha's secret biological laboratory.
1: Rehab Taha, the famous Iraqi biologist. She'd run the weapons programs back in the 90s and was known as Dr. Germ. This could
3: be big. We go there. The site is frozen, meaning we tell them, do you stop everything you're doing? No one can enter or leave, don't shred documents. And they enter
1: this building that's meant to be a biological warfare lab.
3: And we go there and it's obviously a pension office complete with old retired soldiers and shag carpeting and old guys watching Iraqi game shows. You know, it never was a a laboratory of any kind. Every day I woke up, I'd be like, yes, today is the day where we're going to get a good intelligence tip. And yes, there will be a missile at that farm. And, you know, you go up and it's just a bunch of chickens. And several times they did literally find chickens. So this happened several times. We got intelligence that uh, Scud missiles were being held at some site in the middle of nowhere. And we drive out there and we'd immediately freeze the site, scare the crap out of the farmer that's there. And we'd start looking around. It's like, what, what, where, where could you possibly hide a missile? You know, then we'd stop in front of a chicken shed, which is generally like 30 meters long by three meters high building that's semi-cylindrical. Chicken sheds somehow have a central role in this story. And I was like, okay, you know, full of chickens.
1: Rocco and his team went to so many of these chicken farms that were allegedly Scud missile bases.
3: That I made up some t-shirts for the team that said, Unmovic, ballistic chicken farm inspection team.
1: And then Rocco and his team start getting a whole series of tips that seem like they might be the real deal. Tips coming from a new source, a source named Curveball.
3: In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organisation called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of
2: all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun.
3: Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is cover-up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No!
1: It's now February 2003. While Rocco was traveling around chicken farms in Iraq, Lawrence Wilkerson was back in his office in Washington. He'd been to that meeting in the White House Situation Room that we heard about at the beginning of the episode. And then one day his boss, Secretary of State Colin Powell, comes in again. He said, I've got to make a presentation to the UN Security Council. I want you to put
2: it together for me
1: a presentation to the United Nations Security Council, a presentation that would set out in detail the administration's case for war. And it wasn't going to be Cheney or Rumsfeld or George Bush presenting. It was going to be Colin Powell. At the time, he was one of the most popular politicians in America. He was seen as the most reasonable member of the administration. And the president and the vice president knew that. They needed someone the public trusted to present their case for war.
2: And Cheney said, this is the man with the high poll ratings, and then turned to Powell and poked his finger in his chest and said, and you can afford to lose a few points anyway.
1: Last time we heard how Powell and Blair had together won the battle with Cheney and persuaded Bush to go to the United Nations and ask for a new resolution. The British ambassador, Christopher Mayer, remembers it well. After the passage of 1441,
2: there was a kind of surge of optimism ran through parts of the U.S. administration. There was a moment when we thought we were going to avoid
1: war. So what happened? Why, just a few months later, was Powell being asked to go to the United Nations and present the case for war? To cut a long story short, the neocons had never actually backed down. In fact, after the first U.N. resolution was passed, they'd stepped up their verbal attacks on Saddam, the war drums only started to beat louder and louder. And tonight I have a message for the brave and oppressed people of Iraq. Your enemy is not surrounding your country, your enemy is ruling your country. And the day he and his regime are removed from power will be the day of your liberation. The neocons were determined this wouldn't become a matter of whether the inspectors found WMD or not. They were pushing, pushing ever harder for war. And Powell was once again being sidelined. Troops started moving out into the Middle East. And there was this sense that once troops started to be placed out in the Middle East, ready for action, that the diplomatic and inspectors' timetables were made redundant. Unless you were prepared to march the troops up to the top of the hill and march them down again. And the American military sure as hell didn't want that. That was a big problem for Colin Powell, but it was also a problem for Tony Blair because he knew he wouldn't be able to sell war on the terms of the first resolution. Lawyers at home were telling him war might actually be illegal. So he was trapped desperate. What could he do? The answer was a second resolution. A second resolution that would supposedly give Saddam one last chance to comply, and if he didn't, would actually authorize military action. And so he flies to Washington, one last high-stakes meeting with George Bush, one more meeting to try and keep the show on the road, both internationally and at home, he was going to try and pitch for this new resolution but the Americans were adamant they didn't need one
2: and my argument
3: was that may be true but politically it's important that we at least try for it and obviously if, if if we had secured that resolution it would have made a difference what difference well it would have it would have offered Saddam one last way of coming fully into compliance but and it's possible he might have taken it I don't know.
1: So one of the reasons for the second resolution wasn't to bring the Labour Party or allies in Europe and all the rest on side, but was also it would be the last warning to Saddam and one he might take real notice of.
3: Yeah, if, if, you, if you could have got the resolution, yes, of course. Um, now, you know, everyone was telling us, don't be optimistic about getting a second resolution, and we weren't. No, of course, it was, it was both for political reasons and for, for reasons of trying to avoid conflict. But
1: is it really true that he was trying to avoid conflict? Because when Blair meets Bush in the Oval Office, there's no mention of avoiding conflict. This meeting was recorded in a secret memo, later revealed by the New York Times. And in it, Blair says to Bush, the reason we want a second resolution, and I quote, is, if anything went wrong with the military campaign or if Saddam increased the stakes by burning oil wells, killing children, fomenting internal divisions within Iraq, a second resolution would give us international cover, especially with the Arabs. No talk of peace here. Simply cover for what was to come. He pleads with Bush. He tells him, I need this. And eventually, Bush relents. And so this was the context in which it was decided that Colin Powell would go to the UN to make the case for war and to get a UN resolution that backed that case. One last chance to get the international community on side. A last chance to show the world this is why we want war. This was a big defeat for Powell. He'd always been the one arguing against the rush to war, and now he was having
2: to go out there and make the case for war. Why did he do it? Excellent question, one that comes to my students' mouths almost (laughs) every case study. Why did he tolerate this? Why did he stay? And then I say back to them, why do you think? And generally their answer is one word, loyalty, or two words, the loyal soldier you ask yourself if i leave who will replace me and will they be able to stand up to this juggernaut better than i or worse will they be a part of the juggernaut and you and you convince yourself that, that you know no matter how painful or how agonizing it is and i can't imagine after the third year that it wasn't painful i know it was painful because it was changing his whole personality
1: Wilkerson had worked with Powell for over 30 years. He was his right-hand man, knew him better than anyone, and now he could see Powell wasn't the same person. So when Powell walked into the office and asked Wilkerson to work on this UN speech...
2: I wrote out my resignation because it wasn't because I objected. I want to be clear on this. It wasn't because I objected to the contents of what he was going to present, not at that time. It was because he had done this to me so many times where I didn't have sufficient time to do a good job. And uh, I was sick of doing that. I was sick of having, you know, no sleep, no rest, put a team together at the last minute. It was almost like being back at war again. But he went home to his wife and she talked him back into it. She said he wouldn't have anybody. it was just completely unambitious, unconcerned with anything other than protection of him. Why did you want to do that? That's my
1: producer, Joe Sykes.
2: He was wading into a den of thieves.
1: And so he stays. He stays to do the best job he can, to make Powell's speech as credible as it could possibly be. But he faces a big problem immediately because when Powell bursts into his office and tells him about this speech, he hands him a 48-page document which comes from the vice president's office, the vice president's chief of
2: staff, Scooter Libby. Wilkerson is shocked. It's a lawyer's brief written by a lawyer. It reads like uh, the narrative for a prosecutor's Final statement or opening statement or both.
1: It's full of accusations that had already been disproved time and time again. Accusations like Saddam Hussein used his secret police to train al-Qaeda
2: operatives. There's no source for that at all. Who gave you that intelligence? Did bin Laden speak to you? Who gave you that intelligence?
1: It turns out this piece of information was sourced back to the New York Times who'd got the information from Dick Cheney who'd got it from a raw intelligence file he'd seen in the Pentagon
2: then who had put it in the raw intelligence on Ahmed Chalabi and the Iraqi National Congress
1: the same ahmed chalabi the same stuff as had come up again and again over the past 18 months Lawrence thought it was bullshit so he says to the director of the CIA George Tenet
2: this ain't going to do we can't do this and i was really Very suspicious of him, because he hadn't said it. I mean, he's an intelligence professional. We're sitting there listening to The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Give me a break, George. Is this the way you do intelligence? You're making me think all the CIA does on its billion-dollar budget is sit around the world's capitals, read newspapers, and report it back as finished intelligence. Is the truth? Tenet eventually backs down. He's worried that Powell is going to turn up and ask for the speech. And and we're going to have to tell him we've made no progress. So let's go to the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate. And, you know, in relief, stupid me, I said, fine, let's do that.
1: The National Intelligence Estimate, this was a document that had been written back in October 2002. It was meant to set out the collective judgment of U.S. intelligence agencies on weapons in Iraq. And so they start work trawling through this document.
2: I get the team together and we go out to Langley and we live there seven days and seven nights. In the bowels of the CIA, looking at satellite photography, looking at graphs of chemical production, looking at anthrax charts, looking at the results of the first inspections. It's all just words flowing, and a lot of words. And then they find evidence that seems
1: to be persuasive Evidence about one of Saddam's allegedly most secure and secret programs, mobile weapons laboratories. The only problem is they didn't have any pictures.
2: Powell wasn't convinced. No, he said, if you guys don't have any photographs of these things, what the hell are you doing saying they exist?
1: Powell realized he was putting everything on the line here, and they didn't even have photographs. But the intelligence services said, well, we got this from an engineer who
2: worked on the trucks, an engineer we interrogated. This engineer who had not only worked in them, but had been one of the principal guys working in them and had described in detail to the German intelligence service uh, an accident in one of them that had released some of the agent and killed some of the people working there, clearly indicating it was a lethal agent they were working on. The
1: intelligence services said this source had given them a huge amount of detailed information.
2: We know specific distances. We know exactly how they look. We know where the fermenters are. We know where the hydrogen intake is and so forth and so on. So we can draw these things for you. And he finally bought that.
0: And who is this source?
2: Oh, this is curveball. Ball. the
1: centrepiece of Powell's case, of the American case. And to some extent, the British case, resting on this source. A source who'd shown up in a refugee camp in Germany way back in 1998. The night before the presentation, Wilkerson gathers his team down in the cafeteria
2: at the United Nations, which I had set up to be a mock UN Security Council, putting name tags around and positioning everybody as if they were in the Security Council. And he goes through it by his own order. No one will interrupt me, understand? So Powell goes
1: through the speech as if he was doing it for real, and it's convincing. But Wilkerson says he did realize at the time that most of the evidence was circumstantial not cast iron.
2: These are all little tidbits picked up and pasted together to form a mosaic that is supposed to tell us that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction to include mobile labs for biological weapons, vast stocks of chemical weapons, and other dastardly things. It was a mosaic that told a good story.
1: It was powerful. Just before ending for the night, Powell said to Wilkerson... Just give this one last look, would you? It's still 10 minutes too long.
2: 2 a.m. in the morning at the Waldorf Astoria. I'm up typing. And so I had the the, uh, script in a computer and I was taking things out. And Phil Mudd showed up. Phil Mudd was a senior CIA
1: guy. He was there on the orders of the director of the CIA, George Tenet.
2: He knocks on the door. Phil comes in and he says, right out, I mean, not even a, a, a hail fellow well-met. He I understand you're changing the presentation for tomorrow. I said, who told you that? He said, I don't know. I just, I heard you were making changes. And I heard you were making changes to my part.
1: Wilkerson was giving it his last shot to try and water down the link in the speech the link the White House was so desperate to push between al-Qaeda and Saddam. Phil Mudd says to him, I don't
2: think you should be making changes to it. And Wilkerson replies, I have carte blanche from the Secretary of State. He's in the suite down the hall. Why don't you go take it up with him? And Phil disappears. The next morning, I'm standing there kind of looking around, you know, dumb shit, don't know what to do because I'm out of my element there. And Tennant comes up to me.
1: George Tenet, the director of the CIA.
2: And he puts his arm around me, as Tennant was wont to do. He says, I understand that you were making changes last night. I said, yep. Well, um, why did you think you had the prerogative to do that? The secretary gave it to me. I don't take my orders from you, George. Uh, and then he smiled and removed his arm. He said, well, it won't make any difference walked off. That was it.
1: I call now on the distinguished Secretary of State of the United States of America, His Excellency, Mr. Colin Powell. Thank
0: you, Mr. President. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished colleagues, I would like to begin by expressing my thanks for the special effort that each of you made to be here today. This is an important day for us all as we review the situation respect, with respect to Iraq and its disarmament
1: obligations under UN Security Council Resolution 1441. Powell starts to go through the evidence, and Tenet is sitting right behind him, a prop, to say to the world, the CIA stands behind all this, He first makes the case that it doesn't matter that the inspectors haven't actually found anything because the Iraqis are in breach of the resolution.
0: This council placed the burden on Iraq to comply and disarm and not on the inspectors to find that which Iraq has gone out of its way to conceal for so long. Inspectors are inspectors, they are not detectives. I asked for this session today...
1: And then he starts to list the evidence. And for all Wilkerson's attempts, the link between al-Qaeda and Saddam is still in there. But what I want to bring to your attention today is the potentially much more sinister nexus between Iraq and the al-Qaeda terrorist network. And then he comes to weapons of mass destruction and those mobile laboratories, the cornerstone of this presentation. One of the most worrisome things
0: that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on Iraq's biological weapons, is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. And Let he talks about what his source, Curveball, has alleged. We know. The source was an eyewitness, an Iraqi chemical engineer who supervised one of these facilities. And it was all very detailed. He reported that when UNSCOM was in country and in inspecting, The biological weapons agent production always began on Thursdays at midnight because Iraq thought UNSCOM would not inspect on the Muslim holy day. And the more detail he cites, the more credible the allegations seem to be. The units could not be broken down in the middle of a production run, which had to be completed by Friday evening before the inspectors might arrive again. This defector is currently hiding in another country with a certain knowledge that Saddam Hussein will kill him
1: if he finds him. Just like Blair before him and Cheney and Bush, Powell was painting a terrifying picture of the threat that Saddam's regime posed. Ladies and gentlemen, these are sophisticated facilities. For
0: example, they can produce anthrax and botulinum toxin. In fact, they can produce enough dry biological agent in a single month to kill thousands upon thousands of people. And dry agent of this type is the most lethal form for human
1: beings. All around the world, people are tuning in. I was sitting in the Security Council chambers on February the 3rd, 2003. Warren Strobel, our newspaper reporter from Night Ridder. And it was
2: pow, and they had, like, declassified uh, signals, intelligence intercepts of Iraqis talking, and they had maps of Abu Musab al-Zaqawi in northern Iraq, and he was saying it was a real threat. And I guess for a day, or day and a half, <laughs> I wasn't as skeptical as I should have been. I admit that. And I think if you look at the coverage the next day, there were other columnists and so forth who were like, well, Powell says
0: it. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's true. We must not shrink from whatever is ahead of us. We must not fail in our duty and our responsibility to the citizens of the countries
1: that are represented by this body. Thank you, Mr. President. At the end of the speech, you can see Powell stop, and he's just sitting there. And all the members of the Security Council are just staring at him.
2: I think it's safe to say he was sort of subdued for a moment or two, but then people started as they always do, you know, patting you on the back and congratulating you and all this other kind of stuff. Powell was anxious to leave. As was I. Uh, As I recall, he even beat me, and I I was out within five minutes. I I went out to 42nd Street or whatever that street is, and uh, it was pretty cold. The wind was blowing hard, as it always seems to be there. Um, And I walked up and down the street for a few minutes trying to get my head straight because I was so damn sleepy and tired and had so much caffeine, I could hardly think straight. And then my deputy chief of staff walked up, Peggy Sabrina, and she said, have you anything to eat? And I said, I don't even know, Peggy. She said, well, I know a little noodle place, you know? And she walked, she walked me across 42nd Street and up around the block and we stopped in and got, uh, got something to eat. She was right, I hadn't had anything to eat in about a day and a half.
1: It was over, case made, time to eat. Halfway across the world, the weapons inspector, Rocco
3: Casagrande, was taking in what he'd just seen. I remember watching the speech live, we all did. He's thinking, hang on. Every place he mentioned, specifically, that I had been to, I was thinking to myself, well, that's not how it actually is. He'd
1: been to many of these places, he'd studied them, He knew there were no biological agents there. He'd compiled a report saying there weren't any. So why was Powell saying there were?
3: And I'm sure they were picking up everything that we sent back, either through direct means or indirect means, because, you know, the U.S. intelligence system is very good at collection. So they must have seen my reports from the field, you know, going to all these places and not finding anything. And so they either thought that I was completely stupid or completely oblivious. Like, I can't can't imagine they didn't have that information. And yet they didn't choose to use it in their case.
1: Maybe because the information didn't fit what they were trying to sell. Three weeks after Powell's speech, Rocco was told, time's up.
3: And by the time my three-month term was up in early March, it was very clear that war was going to start any minute. So I decided not to renew. And I remember we had a bus that took us from our hotel to the airport. And there were basically just a handful of radio stations in Iraq. One of them played like military like marching music all the time. And the other one uh, was run by one of Saddam Hussein's sons that really loved soft 70s pop so like lionel richie and things like that and so i remember as the bus is pulling up to the airport i thought it was a uh, great um, allegory for our overall trip here <laughs> how did you feel as you left um gee I, I think I was feeling more relief like that. I escaped, uh, cause like I said, especially near the end, we really thought the war would start any minute and I think I felt disappointment, um, that that time was probably for naught. I knew. That war would have devastating consequences to these people.
1: Lawrence Wilkerson's feelings on his role in all this are a bit stronger.
2: But I said it was the lowest point in my personal and professional life, and I've been it. Well, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never put words into the principal cabinet officer for the president of the United States and the American people that were, in essence, in their import on their most important and vital issues, false. And led to war.
1: That's next time on The Fault Line. The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Alexander Mark at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Mayle, Alex Elder, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive.